Thanks so much for reading, Janelle. I'm going to move this a little bit over here. Brilliant. We are, um, it's the final bit of Luke, actually, that we're going to be looking at. So when we come back after Easter, I'm going to say this, so we're committed to it. We're going to be looking at the book of Joshua. Um, my, my instinct's always to change my mind on everything, but we're going to do that. We're going to look at the book of Joshua, so that will be um, after Easter. So we'll come back to Luke again uh, in the future. Let me pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful to you for displaying to us the wonder and the beauty of your Son in the Scriptures. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to Christ, fill our hearts with the joy that he speaks of here. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to jump in a little bit, really. Um, we've, we've been following Jesus' early ministry. Uh, he's been getting a reaction. Uh, he's described himself as the one who's come to preach good news, that his kingdom will grow, and that he will bring forgiveness. But he is baffling the religious establishment because he just doesn't fit their expectations. So John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, he came as a prophet. And at least John fitted something of the prophet stereotype. A little bit quirky, out in the desert, eating honey, locusts, um, preaching fierce sermons. The, The religious establishment may not have liked John, but at least they understood him. But Jesus, you can't make sense of him. So he claims to be a prophet, but he's nothing like John the Baptist. No strange clothes, no locusts, no honey. He claims to be the king of God's people. But he is born in a stable, comes from a nowhere place called Nazareth. He claims to be the servant of the Lord, caring about the law of God. And yet last week, what was he doing He was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. You see, the religious establishment can't make sense of Jesus. He doesn't fit their model, their expectations, and they're beginning to get angry with him. And they're starting to push back. And what we see here, three incidences where they push back against Jesus, but in response, Jesus is showing us the kind of kingdom that he is bringing in, in contrast to the kingdom and the rule of the Pharisees. So let's think about that in our first point, the era of Christ. Have a look down at verse 33. They said to him, that's the Pharisees, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Okay, so so fasting was a key part of life back in the, uh, the time of, of Jesus. Not, not like it is today, not because people were trying to lose weight, that's why people fast today, isn't it? No, they fasted to express sorrow for their sin, to, to mourn over their sin. And they fasted because they were longing for God to come in, in salvation. So fasting was associated with sadness and sorrow and heavy-heartedness. But while the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples were mourning, what were Jesus and his disciples doing? They were eating and they were drinking. They were feasting instead of fasting. Why is that? Verse 34. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They don't fast because Jesus, the bridegroom, is with them. Now that is a breathtaking thing for Jesus to say. In the Old Testament, it is God who describes himself as the bridegroom of his people. 
So in Isaiah 62 verse 5, God promises that he will come to his people and as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, he will rejoice over his people. So Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. God come to his people. And this isn't just shocking in a Jesus is claiming to be God kind of way. It's also shocking because it means that when God came to his people, he didn't come to judge first and foremost. That was the expectation. He came to propose. He didn't come with fire and sword. He turned up with a ring and down on one knee. It's the bridegroom coming for his bride. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? So Jesus is the bridegroom has come to to offer salvation and life. And that means it is a time to celebrate and to feast, not to mourn and to fast. And with the coming of Jesus as the bridegroom, he is saying that a new era in salvation history has started, the Christ era. An era that is completely different and utterly incompatible with the era of the Pharisees and their their man-made religion. So look what Jesus says next in verse 36. He told them this parable, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And... No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. You don't need to know loads about how to make clothes and how to make wine to see what Jesus is getting at here. If you rip an old garment, don't fix it by cutting out a piece of cloth from a new garment. That piece of cloth, it won't match the old one and it will ruin the new one. Or if you make some new wine, don't pour it into old wineskins because the wine will continue to ferment. It's new and will put pressure on the wineskins until eventually they burst. So you lose the wine and you ruin the old wineskins. The point is you cannot mix the new thing with the old thing. You cannot mix the era of Christ with the era of the Pharisees. One is an era of salvation and mercy and forgiveness and grace. The other is an era of self-righteousness, man-made religion, and judgment without mercy. I just want to make something really clear, though, here. Because I know it sounds like Jesus might be saying, I am bringing in a new thing. The old era is gone. And it might be saying, it sounds like it could be saying, oh, the, the old era of, of the Old Testament, that's all gone. I'm bringing in something new. There is some truth in the idea that Jesus is bringing in something new. But the contrast that Jesus is making here isn't between his era and his kingdom and the Old Testament. As if Jesus is saying, everything that has come before, everything in the scriptures before me, you need to replace that. You need to reinterpret that. Now, that's what some people think. So I heard a debate this week um, between some some different people in the Church of England, actually, and and, and some were making this very point. With Jesus, we move on from the Old Testament. 
We can reinterpret it. We can leave it behind. That is not the contrast that Jesus is making. No, the contrast is between the era of Christ and the era of the Pharisees, the era of man-made religion. Jesus is not the innovator. He's not making up something brand new. He isn't the one who is adding to the teachings of God or revising them. That was what the Pharisees were doing. And it was what those Christians were doing in the debate that I heard. See, with Jesus comes the era of the bridegroom, the era of Christ. The era of God coming to his people in order to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. And he comes to offer his hand in marriage. So no wonder Jesus says now is the time to feast, not to fast. And brothers and sisters, we still live in this era. And obviously there are, the time we live in is still a time of pain and, and it's a time of sadness and a, and a time of sin. We're still waiting for Jesus to return and so fasting is still part of the Christian life. I think there's an expectation that at times Christians will fast, mourning their sin, longing for Jesus to return. But we must not lose sight of what Jesus is saying here. The bridegroom has come. Let us feast as well as fast. Christians don't need to be marked by misery and despair and hopelessness. Instead, we can be marked by a joy that burns deep within us. Even when we are mourning our sin or grieving the world that we live in, the joy continues to burn within us because we live in the era of Christ the bridegroom. In Deuteronomy, the Lord commands his people to have an annual Thanksgiving meal. Amazing verses. The people are encouraged to, and I quote, buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine or other fermented drink or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. One church pastor in the States encourages his church to hold an annual Thanksgiving meal. He writes, and it'll be on the screen, this celebration should be in the presence of the Lord and it should be characterized by discipline, restraint, but also joy, drinking, eating, laughing and deep satisfaction in the kindness and mercy of God. He goes on, a little bit more jokingly, but he goes on and says, done right with dancing, singing psalms, feasting and communal joy, it will be the talk of the community as we try and put the fun back into fundamentalism. Brothers and sisters, yes, there is still a time for fasting, but let us not forget the feasting and the joy. The bridegroom has come. So we gather Sunday by Sunday and we start with praise and thanks and adoration. Praise be to the Lord, the God Almighty, King Almighty. We open our homes, we cook food. We eat together, we laugh together, and we start every meal with a hearty prayer of thankfulness, not just for the food in front of us, but for all the blessings that are ours in Christ. There was a clip doing the rounds this week on Twitter, a group of people sheltering in an underground station in, in Kiev in Ukraine. The bombs are coming down, and what are they doing? They were dancing. 
Something of that stance for us as Christians, dancing while the bombs drop, feasting even in a broken world. Even though tears may be streaming down our face, we still sing our songs with a deep joy in our hearts that will never go out. Because Jesus, the bridegroom, has come. It is the era of salvation. God has come for his bride. So the era of Christ, the era of salvation. Secondly, in the era of Christ, the command of Christ rules. We get to the next incident where the Pharisees push back against Jesus. Have a look at 6 verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now it looks like one of those kind of gotcha moments. Jesus and his disciples have broken the Old Testament law. Gotcha, Jesus. How are you going to get out of this one? You've plucked corn on the Sabbath. But the problem is, if you read through the Old Testament law, there is no command prohibiting people from plucking corn on the Sabbath, especially if they're hungry. No, when it comes to the Sabbath, the only command really, the the, the one main command that God gives, it'll be on the screen, is Deuteronomy 5. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work to the end, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. One command, don't work on the Sabbath. Rest, enjoy it. But the Pharisees, in their man-made religion, took that one command and they added 613 more to it. Now, I imagine their intention was admirable. They were so desperate to never break a command or a law of God and, and not even to come close that they put their own rules up around it. They put rules around rules, their own commands around the command of God so that people didn't even come close to breaking God's law. If the Pharisees had been in the Garden of Eden when God said to Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they wouldn't have just obeyed that simple command. They would have put a 10-mile exclusion zone around the tree making sure nobody came even close to it. And so the Pharisees, with all their extra rules, had taken what was a gift from the Lord, a day of rest, a day to enjoy God with his people, and they turned it into a burden and a hassle and something miserable. It's what man-made religion loves to do, adding to the law of God, putting commands around commands. Rules around the law of God and then imposing those extra rules on people. Why do you do what is unlawful on the Sabbath, they asked. But according to whose law? Now look, we live in the era of Christ, but we are still prone to live as though we are in a man-made religion, aren't we? We add laws and commands to the word of God and then impose those commands on other people. That's always a temptation for us. So I can tell you, don't get drunk. That is a command from scripture. But I can't tell you, you must never drink alcohol. Might be a good idea. 
But I cannot command you to do that. That would be me adding rules around the command of God. Or we homeschool our children. Now I can tell you, if you're parents, you must bring up your children in the teaching and discipline of Christ. That's the command of Scripture. But I can't say to you, you must homeschool your children. It may be a good thing to do for you. But if I did, that would be me adding rules around the commands of God and imposing those rules on you. One more example. The environment. I can tell you to steward the earth, to rule over it with wisdom and sense. That is Genesis 1. But I can't command you, you must recycle. You must get an electric car. You must refit your home so it's carbon zero. That is me adding rules around rules. The era of the Pharisees, the realm of man-made religion, adds rules around rules and opposes those on others. But in the era of Christ, the realm, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, only his command has ultimate authority. Now, the next few verses, I'm going to be honest, I'm not entirely sure I understand them fully, but let me give you a sense of what I think is going on. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus points the Pharisees back to something that happened in the life of David. David in the Old Testament becomes God's king. But at this point, he's being hunted down by King Saul and he is running for his life. He and his men are starving. They enter the temple, or the tabernacle as it was back then, and they ask for food. But the priest says, we haven't got any food. The only food we have is the bread of presence, which is this holy bread that only the priest can eat. It was, it was forbidden for anyone else to eat that bread. But David ate some and he gave some to his men to stop them starving and it was considered to be the right thing to do. This is what I think Jesus is saying. David had authority to rightly interpret God's law, to know when and how the law applied because he was God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart. Who is Jesus? Verse five, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. David, as the rightful king of God's people, had the authority to rightly interpret God's law. And then the Pharisees come along and they think we have the authority to rightly interpret God's law, to add commands around the law of God. But Jesus says, no, you don't. Only I have that authority. Because Jesus isn't just the king of God's people like David. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Think what he is saying right there. He is the Lord who created the Sabbath back in Genesis 2. He is the Lord who gave the command in the Old Testament, you shall work six days, but on the Sabbath you shall rest. Only Jesus has the authority to decide what is appropriate and what isn't on the Sabbath because it's his thing. He is Lord of the Sabbath. So the commands of the Pharisees, the extra rules they imposed, they are just the commands of man. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Only his law has authority. So in the era of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, it is only the command of Christ that rules. Got some youngsters in, rooted, love having you in. If you've been following, and that's maybe a bit of a bit of an if, but perhaps if you've been following, you might be thinking, great, 
So when my parents tell me to tidy my room, I can say, look, only the command of Christ rules, not the command of my parents. But of course, what does Jesus command children to do? Obey their parents. Adults, we also are commanded to obey those who are in authority over us by the Lord Jesus. So we must listen to people who have that legitimate authority over us. So yes, go tidy your room. But what I can't do is impose my own practice upon you. I can't say you must not drink. I can't say you must come to our Sunday evening gathering. You must come to church on a Sunday. But I can't say you must come twice and come to our Sunday evening. I can't say you must homeschool your children. I can't say you must buy an electric car. No, it's the command of Christ in the era of Christ that rules, not the command of Clifton. And as we finish, the command of Christ always leads to life. In the era of Christ, the command of Christ always leads to life. That's our final little section. It's another Sabbath and another encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, between the era of Christ and the era of the Pharisees, that the realm of Christ and the realm of man-made religion. Let's see what happens, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. All eyes are on Jesus. The Pharisees are watching. But not in the anticipation that some poor soul is about to be healed and given his hand back so he can go and work. No, they are watching in the hope that Jesus does something that they can accuse him of doing and breaking the law of God. They want Jesus to heal the man, not because they care about the man, because they want Jesus to break one of their laws. You shall not heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus exposes the cruelty and callousness and wickedness of their religion. Verse 8, he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? The Lord of the Sabbath is about to show us what the Sabbath is really all about. It was always about life. It was always about resting and worshipping God in order to restore body and soul. So what is it lawful to do on the Sabbath? Good or harm? To save or to destroy? The Pharisees don't answer. And it shows up the cruelty of their man-made rules. Man-made religion always destroys. Whether it's the man-made religion of the Pharisees that burdens the soul with rules upon rules, or the man-made religion of certain groups today in the church who would want to update God's law with their own laws that destroy the soul by leading people into sin. Man-made religion always destroys. But look what the laws of Christ do. Verse 10 Jesus issues two commands to this man. This is the second command, the second law, if you like, that he issues to this man. After looking around, he said to him, stretch out your hand. It is a command. Stretch out your hand. And what does that command lead to? 
The man did so and his hand was restored. The command of Christ in the era of Christ leads to life. In the era of Christ, we still live under law. Of course we do. We live under the law of Jesus. But that command of Christ always leads to life. The man obeyed and his hand was restored. It's true of every command of Christ. He commands us to gather Sunday by Sunday, not because he wants to burden us. No, because he wants to give us life. He commands us to share the Lord's Supper. That's what we're about to do. Because to do so brings life to our soul. He commands us to honour our parents, to keep our marriage vows, to be generous and hospitable, to submit to our elders, to pay your taxes, to forgive and then forgive and then forgive again. He commands us to be sexually pure, to be hard-working. And none of these are about burdening us, about taking life away from us. They all give life. The man obeyed the command of Christ and his hand was restored. Give life. And we know that that is what Jesus' intention is. How do we know that? Because it cost him his life to preach this gospel. Verse 11. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Sensing that their power was waning. Sensing that their era was coming to an end. The Pharisees want Jesus gone. This discussion that they start now ends in the death of Jesus. Jesus died that we might have life. The era of Christ is the era of life and salvation. To all who believe the gospel, they will have life. To all who obey the commands of Christ, they will experience life both now and forever. This is what Jesus is about, the era of Christ. The bridegroom has come. Yes, we fast, we mourn, but we don't forget to feast And we live under the command and rule of Christ that leads to life. Moment of quiet, then I'm going to pray. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Heavenly Father, there is so much just in that one sentence alone. Blows our mind to think that you came to us first and foremost to offer your hand in marriage. That we might know you, our God, to be our husband. Lord, that is reason to be joyful this morning, whatever else is going on in our life. And we thank you that with the Lord Jesus comes an era of salvation and life. The destructive, soul-destroying effects of man-made religion. Jesus is brushing aside to show us where true life can be found. May we all enjoy that afresh this morning. Perhaps for some it might be the first time that they truly come to Christ and know the life-giving message of his gospel. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.